Human beings have neither the oral nor the psychological capacity to withstand the awesome power of God's true voice. Theology unplugged. Hermeneutics. Herman who? The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Theology unplugged. I mean, uh, if God is omniscient, if he knows everything, and he wouldn't be God if he didn't, then he must have known, even before the creation of the world, the names of those who will be saved. Theology unplugged. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. Theology unplugged. Would you guys agree that Christianity is defined so much and it's how we act, but we do have some definite theological markers? Theology unplugged. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. I am Michael Patton, and I am joined here by Clint, Sam, and Tim once again. Good to see you guys. How is uh, how are things going with you? Good, good. good. Yeah, it's good to be back together, and uh, it's good to be. I freely came to this podcast. I was compelled. You I were had, compelled. I had no choice whatsoever. Were, were you compelled by my freedom to come? Maybe <laughs> I was compelled by Michael's invitation. <laughs> all right. Michael invited me before the foundations of the earth. You guys were compelled I freely by came all kinds of factors after his that you invitation. guys don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> you just think you freely came. I really wanted to be here. Yeah. Well, I freely came, but I'm not sure if I want to be here. I wanted to not want to come, but I couldn't not want to. What am I going to do? This is a good way to really get our listeners confused. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, we are going to be talking about freedom of the will once again. Uh, last week, and Tim, should we just jump right in? Is that okay? I think we should jump jump right in, brother. Okay. Last week, we ended by talking about uh, what is free will, beginning to try to get some type of definition for it, and looking at the spectrum uh, within Christianity of belief from uh, Calvinists and Arminians and the, the differences, the, the way in which people would approach uh, the freedom of the will. Um, now... Now, I, I suppose it might be real uh, beneficial uh, at this point to try to define exactly what we mean by free will. Is that is that fair? That would help. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm going to put Clint on the spot here, our okay. professional philosopher. Mm. What is libertarian freedom? Because that's the conception of free will that probably most people in the street would have, even though they wouldn't use that word, they wouldn't know how to define it. Uh, even non-Christians who think about this issue believe they have libertarian freedom. What is that? It's usually um, laid out like this, and, and you, you'll find this, by the way, in any secular environment where they're talking about this. They'll say, well, here are your options, people. You can be a determinist. I think we know what that means, right? Everything is exactly just inexorably determined. Nobody's there's no agent causation. There is only if, uh, event causation. Determined by you, or determined just by your outside world? Uh, in the in the secular environment, I mean, it, it's uh, it's just all the factors. They they may focus on your biology. They may focus on social factors. Uh, you can be a theological determinist in the strictest sense as well. I mean, every every movement, every thought passing through my mind. It's as you said last time, I think, uh, God is the playwright, and he's writing, he's a novelist and the playwright at the same time. So he's writing your thoughts, and he's writing your words, he's writing your deeds. 
you can be you can you can believe in free will which they will usually say libertarian free will usually that simply means you have the genuine option to choose between alternatives the be option so the the choice that you make between alternatives is uncaused right it's if if it's caused it's caused by your will your right. your, self your reasoning you you have mm. you have reasons you've you've decided on it as opposed to uh, an external force or i say external because you know it could even be your own neurochemistry but you're still a machine acting out uh, as it were like a computer commands were written and you're just you know it's sort of like uh, the old french uh, mathematician laplace he once said if anybody were omniscient so as to know every I mean, every atom, every subatomic particle, at any given moment, everything, that person could determine, that person could predict the exact behavior of every human being in the next moment. Because he's just presupposing that there's no wild card, there's no X factor, there's no agent causation. I can't zig when you thought I was going to zag. But then, of course, a lot of people don't like those options because they say, well, boy, I, I, you know, I'm drawn to determinism because I see all these factors acting on us, and I'm not sure we're really free. Can determinism be also defined as fatalism? Yes. There, there's often a distinction between them. I think for our purposes, I'll conflate the two, though, and just say it, everything is, it is as it must have been. It yeah. couldn't have been otherwise. Yeah. But people will say, because last time we were talking about that we all agree that there's moral accountability. This is biblically taught, obviously, and it seems to, uh, that, that is what our moral intuition tells us. But people who take a deterministic route say, wait a minute, this spells trouble. We need accountability. So they, want, they, they attempt to have both of them in some way, and that usually the, fan, you know, the fancy term for that is compatibilism. They'll say, oh, we're determined, and yet somehow we're still morally responsible. And they'll cast that out in a few different ways and we'll go into. But I think, and, and, and just to make one minor distinction, even in the libertarian free will camp, I don't think that that commits a person to what we said last time was maximal autonomy. I mean, our freedom has all kinds of limits. Everything that you are in this moment, uh, you weren't free to be other than you are. Hmm. To be who you are, be born where you were born, have the cultural influences, have the likes and dislikes and inclinations, and you know all of those things you can't be someone else you didn't choose any of that but the question is right now being what i am as i am do i have a genuine option to choose a or b if you say yes you're not a determinist mm -hmm. so if i leave here today and i go to subway for example uh, that's an unpaid advertisement and i have this <laughs> i have this equal desire and inclination toward a club sandwich on wheat bread as well as sweet onion chicken teriyaki on white bread um, am i altogether and absolutely free to choose either one with no causal determination that is a tough choice those sound really good <laughs> <laughs> i'm afraid in answering it i'm going to su uh, subconsciously inject my own Preference. preferences uh, to sway but, you which way you ought choice, to go though. is he able freely to make that choice in the universe that we live in uh i would say yes yeah. and it's and it's defined sometimes as the power of contrary choice right. in other words if you got the sweet onion sandwich mm -hmm. could you have gotten the other sandwich is it possible and most people look at this and say yes of course it's possible but once again we get to that point where you say well maybe not maybe it is something that uh 
all the factors that have come in to make who you are at the time of the choice determines that choice at that moment. Therefore, um, uh, it, it's kind of like you know, I may you know, feel free, yeah, right? Yeah. But in fact, I may not be. So, for example, let's throw in the the Trump card here. No political uh, uh, <laughs> connections there intended. This is going to be huge. Yeah. <laughs> if God, if again, God infallibly <laughs> foreknew in eternity past that I was going to select the sweet onion chicken teriyaki, yeah. does that eliminate my I freedom? knew we were going here. Foreknowledge. Yeah. 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 Could you have chosen otherwise? Right. Yeah. And, and if the, if, uh, let's go back just to the philosophical side of it. You've got a, a, uh, pool table and you got the the uh, cue ball hitting all the other balls once those balls begin to disperse and hit other balls it's not as if there is a pause each time a ball hits another ball and the ball says should i hit this or should i hit something else it just happens and so the whole idea is that if everything is just happening in, in a secular environment let's stay there for a second uh, without uh, uh, the input of God in any sense, then of course you don't have free will. Without God, it's just the the balls are hitting each other, and it may feel like free will, but uh, the only reason that you chose the chicken sandwich is because all these factors came into play, and the cue ball made this happen. Well, well this, is, this is the critical distinction that Clint brought up in our previous podcast, and that is, what's the difference between the cue ball and the other balls on a pool table and the human mind and the human will. The, the determination of which ball is going to go where is a is kind of the result of the size of the cue ball, the force with which it is struck by the tip of the cue, the position of the other balls, the, um, the resistance of the cushions on a pool table. Those balls don't have a choice. As over against a human being who is more than just physical matter. We actually are spiritual as well. We have affections, thoughts, choices. And so obviously somebody, some force or, or causal agent can act upon me, but I don't react to that in the same way that the eight ball is gonna to react to the cue ball when it is struck. Um, if that were the case, then there's really no meaningful sense in which we can say that we are free. So the question is, as a willing spiritual agent, in what sense do I have genuine freedom? Well, then I think what then comes into play is because we're basically using just philosophical thinking, right, to, to arrive where we're at right now. What starts coming into play are concepts like election as well. So even if by talking about a cue ball and all that stuff, uh, we are still maybe leaning towards hey, I feel like I'm really free and no, I'm, I'm maybe not a character in a play that someone else is writing and they've written me in as a character who thinks he has free will, <laughs> but I'm still written in as a character who thinks he has free will and everything's been determined. But then scripture is communicating to us a concept like election, which uh, I think on both sides, uh, like even uh, if you're a Wesleyan, Arminian, or if you're more of a Calvinist and those are kind of different sides, uh, both of those are not 
they're not disregarding election. They're not saying, oh, we don't see election in the Bible. They're, I think that's part of what makes this such a big topic is because everybody has to have a topic or the way that you view reality as it relates to free will has to also include if you're a person of scripture and believe scriptures from god has to include election so i'll, I'll give you um, my definition of free will since that's how you opened this up here i would say that the will is free to choose whatever the heart desires the will is free to choose whatever the heart desires it's it's uncoerced it is voluntary, and it is a function or expression of my nature. So I would argue, as somebody who identifies as being Reformed or Calvinistic, that we are all by nature uh, brought into this world or enter this world with an inclination or a disposition of heart that is antithetical to the gospel, blind to the beauty of Christ, resistant to the moral commands of God. Now, does that mean I don't have freedom in any sense? No, I do. If my choice of will is an uncoerced expression of my heart's desire, that act of will is, a, is in a very meaningful sense free. The question is, do I have the capacity to choose contrary to the desires of my heart? Yeah. The Arminian would say yes. The Calvinist would say no. So... When we move into that debate, the Calvinists will say, no, you don't have free will in the sense that you have the equal power either to uh, dispossess yourself of that evil inclination or to embrace it and follow its prompting. The Arminian would say, yes, you do, that God has restored that in you by an act of uh, prevenient grace. The Calvinists would say, no, our wills are both enslaved to our natures and a voluntary expression of them. What Clint referred to earlier as compatibilism. Well, what have you said? You gave the definition. You said, uh, I'm free to choose what my heart desires. That somebody, And when you say heart, what, what do you mean by heart? Right Nature. The, the disposition, my, my deepest desires, the inclination uh, as to what I love as, as over against what I hate. So would you say that the, the, here, here we have this idea of our heart... The heart is just who we are at that moment, right? right? The, the right. deepest, I'm using that term, we could call it soul. What you most want yeah, in the, the, the moment. The inner yeah. core of your being, the, the disposition to, um, towards something or my uh, antipathy towards something. Is there, let me, just for sake of clarity, like why... You know, I'm just thinking like that might sound a little like platonic to me. Like, hey, we've got this like you've got this flesh body, and then you've got like this deep soul, and those are like kind of two different things. And like, why would you not just say I'm free to choose, and know that I means soul, body, flesh, desires, good, bad, all that stuff. Well, I would. I mean, by heart, um, I think I'm talking about the central core of my being which i'm in i'm in an embodied soul right i yeah. am a, a unity of the material and the immaterial uh, that together obviously operate with any sort of choice going back to the illustration the mere fact that i want a sandwich for lunch is to a large extent less a function of what we would call heart or spirit and more a function of the need of my body my physical frame mm -hmm. but when we're talking about 
the question, okay, here's an individual who's confronted with the gospel of Jesus. Let's bring this back down to a more biblical focus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is presented to any particular human being. Are they um, altogether and in every sense of the term free to say yes to the gospel or no to the gospel in the sense that uh, nothing more is required, that there's no, that God cannot somehow intervene in that person's nature and heart and, and do a supernatural work of reorienting, recalibrating, we call it regeneration or being born again, <laughs> such that they will invariably and inevitably find the gospel appealing as over against a person in whom God doesn't do that work mm -hmm. and they remain hostile and opposed and find nothing appealing or compelling in the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. That's well, where the rubber meets the road in the split between Christians. And what I want to bring back to is election as well. Like is God the person who is freely invited and who does not respond, did God actually intervene in a way where he blocked that? No. No, there's. I would say no. There's nothing in the but, Bible that would that would that would question. convince me that if someone truly wants to believe in the gospel, yeah. God says, "Sorry, the quota of the elect is full," yeah. and He closes the door. Jesus says it clearly in John six: "Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out." But, and exactly, and I think though that this is kind of some of the heart of the issue of where someone responds negatively towards a Calvinistic idea is like, "I want." you know, my sweet grandmother to love Jesus mm -hmm. and God's the one that's standing in the way. You that's know, an external it, compulsion, right? Well, yeah. That, that, I mean, yeah. he defined that. Yeah. It just sounds kind of like the whole Jonathan Edwards sure. uh, layout of this, yeah. which it seems to me, too, that you don't know a person's uh, real desire so that's where it's until they to, do it, yeah. right? In other words, you know, you said, well, look, it's what you most, what, the, what your heart most wants, that's what you will do. Well, and you can't go contrary. Well, someone might say, let's play the skeptic. Oh, sure I can. Right now I really well, I want a pizza. But I'm going to go contrary to that and, you know, and eat eat broccoli because I want to diet. Well, but you didn't really, not in the right sense that we mean. You still did what you wanted. You you see what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. so when we talk about these I think there's a simplistic interpretation of God's activity sometimes that I mean, when I first how about how about Romans nine, which is inevitably has we have to get there, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, when we read that kind of thing, is do do you guys think that it's too simplistic to say, oh well, here's a guy going along. Now here comes God. He zooms in. He he jumps into the to the mix. He switches around the guy's thinking almost ad hoc style. Whereas, um, I'm saying, isn't that an interpretation we we would want to? not take, but in keeping with this view that Sam articulated, would it be better to look at a passage like that and say, look, when it says, you know, God hardened his heart, mm -hmm. the way we probably ought to see that actually working is that, look, God's behind all of the factors going back to the beginning of everything about this man is orchestrated by God so that who he is in that moment, he didn't make who he is, and yeah, he did yeah. what he most wanted to do in that moment and is responsible for it. But God saw to it in ways that are inscrutable to us mm -hmm. and very subtle or, and probably too complicated to trace out that he would do so. Well, Ron Nash, uh, a philosopher that I think most of us are aware of, he, he said the exact same thing whenever he said, we are free to choose according to the greatest desire of the moment. 
and we are compelled to choose according to the greatest desire of the moment. And so the, uh, the whole idea with him, at least, was that you will not ever choose anything, going back to what Sam talked about, the heart or the nature, who you are at the moment, you cannot choose otherwise. You cannot, uh, in other words, you cannot, as you've built up to who you are at the moment of the choice, whether it be the sandwich or whether it be salvation, you cannot have this kind of third party come in, you know, called free will. And this third party says, listen, uh, you know, we've got the greatest desire of the moment, who you are at this this moment, and you would choose that way, but I've come in to save the day. I'm going to give you freedom now, and now you can choose not according to who you are. You can choose according to who you aren't. Yeah. And then if you choose according to who you aren't, let's say you really do want the chicken sandwich, but the free will comes in and says, we really got to give this guy free free will, so uh, let's, let's make him neutralized. Let's kind of give this, in this case, with a sandwich, a provenient grace for the sandwich. Let's, let's give him the ability to choose between both sandwiches equally. And then that creates, for at least for me, that creates all kinds of problems. Because if I do not choose according to who I am at the moment, <laughs> then who is the one choosing? And, and how can you be held morally accountable for that's it? That's right. Mm. So, yeah, I would... I'll come back to my definition. The heart, the will is free to choose what the heart desires. Most people would agree with that. Here's where the division is. Do I have the power and the will and the freedom to change what my heart desires of my own strength and ability? The, the Reformed or Calvinistic answer would be, no, you don't. That this is what regeneration is. The God sovereignly through the Spirit recreates and recalibrates the disposition of your heart so that what used to be ugly is now beautiful. What used to be repelling is now appealing. So um, again, the, the issue isn't, do we act in accordance with our nature? The question ultimately is, do we have some sort of a, a concept of freedom or power by which under our own strength to transform our nature? So almost the idea of like your deepest heart on Monday does not desire Jesus in in a salvation way you know I do not desire Jesus I do not think he's the son of God and I will not believe him as my savior on Tuesday you have the same feeling I do not love Jesus I do, will not follow him I think that's all a fairy tale on Wednesday your heart desires Jesus you think he's the son of God because, he's your savior yeah right. what was the transition right. from because Tuesday to Wednesday I would say Beneath the level of human consciousness, the Spirit of God in a sovereign and mysterious and altogether gracious way has renewed and transformed and brought to life what was dead. He's given you a taste and a, and a hunger and a desire and an awareness of the beauty of something that on Monday and Tuesday and all the days before that was ugly and repellent to you. And then you freely on Wednesday respond to that change of your heart. Yes, do you think this is why, uh, you know, in the evangelical world overall, we don't talk this way as much as maybe we should? I mean, in the classical, I guess, especially Reformed way of thinking, when they, when they would look at uh, the idea of a convert, someone who's regenerated, they would say, regeneration happened before you said, I believe, or I want to do this, or professed your faith. It happened already. You know, God beat you to that. If, to put it in those terms, you you can't say, look what I did, look what I just did. They would say, no, you only did this because 
God did this, allowing you to do this. We don't talk that way in terms of, I think, conversions. At least I don't hear people talk like I do. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I say to people, God is always antecedent. God is always prior. We, you know, do you even, think that's normal in, uh, in the evangelical world? Uh, the no, board? because most even, not normal. <laughs> most evangelicals <laughs> aren't aren't reformed in their thinking. I heard a quote uh, actually yesterday, and I think it was Sinclair Ferguson, maybe that uh, said this. But and, and listen to this. This maybe sound kind of odd at the beginning, but um, uh, what he said was that God does our salvation. And forgiveness do, does not make us acceptable to God. It makes God acceptable to us. You kind of like, wait a minute. You know, what, what are you saying by that? Well, what he what he essentially say, is saying is the same thing we're saying here: is that in our natural state, who we are at the moment, if we choose according to the greatest desire of the moment, our nature is fallen. Our nature is corrupt our nature is at enmity with God, then the greatest desire is always going to be to reject him. Therefore, the mercy of God comes in and makes us now see God in his beauty, see God in his glory. So we have regeneration, and here we're back to the Calvinist idea that regeneration precedes faith because it must precede faith in order for us to make that decision and say, I now see God. I now see his beauty. I now fall down before him. And he is now acceptable as my God because God came in sovereignly and really changed who we were at that moment. Now, if he does do that, is that, is that, is that fair to me? Is it fair to you? You know, and uh, people would jump in and say, that, that just doesn't make any sense because... It's it's not fair. You're not you're not making the choice now. God's coming in and making it for you. Yeah. So exactly. like the idea of like if if God did that in that person between Tuesday and Wednesday, it, why did he not deeply change the affection? Why doesn't everybody have a Tuesday to Wednesday moment? Right. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. There's that brings you back. You raised it. The question of divine election. Yeah. Well, and he raised and, Romans chapter nine too. And so also, Michael, we have to be table. careful also that we don't. <laughs> import into our Christian perspective um, uh, secular concepts of what constitutes fairness. What what constitutes fairness for the Christian is what the Bible says is fair. Mm-hmm. So let, let me try to sum up what I've been trying to say in a couple of statements. No one is prevented from coming to Christ. No one is prevented. It's not as if <clears throat> somebody wants to come and they're coerced against that desire and they are enslaved to their rebellion. No one is prevented. If anyone wants to come to Christ, he or she may. But no one does want to come to Christ unless God sovereignly works in their heart to regenerate them and give them a taste and a desire for that which they previously hated. If God does do that work in their heart, they will come inevitably, invariably. Irresistibly. Irresistibly. The one who doesn't come they alone are responsible for that. They are to be blamed. They are held accountable. The one who does come says, that wasn't ultimately me. That was God. He gets all the glory and the praise. Mm-hmm. Now, that is my theology of the whole concept of in what sense we do or do not have freedom. Some people would say it's incoherent. 
I know my Arminian friends would say, that, does, that, that makes no sense. Well, I think it logically follows. I mean, the first thing you said, what was the first line you had there? What you said, he... No one is prevented from coming to okay, Christ. Okay, maybe the second one. <laughs> no one comes to Christ unless right. God sovereignly works right. in them. And so, uh, yeah, because because if someone... Well, you said no one who wants to would be turned away. Exactly. But, but by definition, if you want to, you've been reborn. Exactly. <laughs> well, now, well, go ahead. The idea that, that carries this over an illustration has to do with you know us being dead in our trespasses and sins, and that is a state of our being. That is um, that is what our nature is, un uh, un uh, manipulated in any sense. It is uh, who we are. We are sinners by birth. We are by nature those who reject God, and so if we are dead then, I mean, it just naturally follows, at least for me, and I know that this is, again, this is hard for people more in the Arminian camp to understand or accept, but for me, you have to have somebody made alive first before they can ever accept. And and let's be real clear. In saying, and you're right to quote Paul in Ephesians 2 in that regard, in saying that a person or all people we believe are born dead in sin, that doesn't mean that they don't have a will doesn't mean that they don't make responsible, morally accountable choices. doesn't mean they don't uh, contemplate and deliberate and evaluate evidence and come to a decision and make it in an uncoerced manner. It simply means that invariably, because of the lack of spiritual life, they will say no to God. They find nothing appealing to them. They don't want him at the fundamental internal essence of their being. And Paul calls that being dead. But basically what he means is you have no taste for the sweetness of Christ. It's you an have, aroma of death. Yeah, right. you, have no, you have no yearning uh, to know him and to love him and to serve him and to honor him with your life. So it's not as if a person is lacking the psychological capacity to make a choice. As Jonathan Edwards said, you have natural ability. You have a mind. You have a volitional capacity. You can deliberate options. You can make a decision. What you lack is the moral ability. And what he means by that is you don't like what you see in the gospel. You hate what you see in the Bible. You despise and want nothing to do with the God of the Old and the New Testaments. But you do that in a morally accountable and uncoerced way. But and an Armenian would just flat out disagree with you, and so, right? Would you say correct? At that step, they would say, "I." They would uh, no, They would say, I "We have, agree with you at the point of your conception in the womb of your mother." Yeah. But at some point prior to you reaching the age of accountability, yeah. God liberates your will, and He restores in you an equal capacity, what we would call moral equilibrium. You can either say yes or no. There's no predisposition that uh, will somehow determine or cause the ultimate choice that so you make. So if we use the illustration of being dead or that picture, he in some ways makes you alive enough that then you freely can make that choice. That's what the Arminian would say, but he makes everybody alive enough. Yeah, so yeah, everyone gets the same choice. Right. Well, we are running out of time, and I do want to talk a lot about how this plays out practically in our daily life, kind of the next step of what freedom looks like and how uh, how much freedom do we have, not just in areas of salvation, but in just the smaller choices that we make, maybe not uh, quite so small, or yeah, I mean, from the sandwich, but also just 
uh, kind of our daily uh, choices that we make that do have moral responsibility. Like, is there like a will of God, and you better find it and go look for it and get yeah, in line with it? We have, but yeah. all I know to say is I'm going to have the sweet onion chicken teriyaki today. <laughs> That's my determination at this point. That's a sweet smelling aroma. If to I you. change my mind at the counter, I'll call you guys and let you know. To another guy, it might be the aroma of death. Tim, that sandwich. Um, Saint Augustine said. Uh, in, in one of his writings, uh, command what you will, mm-hmm. but will right. what you command. And yeah. Pelagius got really angry with him. Why did he get so angry? And then we'll kind of wrap it up with that. Yeah, I mean, well, they lived two vastly different lives, but uh, that statement confused me for a long time. But, you know, what Augustine's saying there is, God, anything that you, uh, like, you read scripture, in anything that God, that you, ask me to do in scripture, I absolutely cannot do it in scripture. I have no chance of doing anything except the places in scripture where you tell me how sinful I am. I can do those. But anything that's a movement towards God, I cannot do it unless you actually give me the power to do those things. And that's so, what Pelagius hated. He hated The, the that. idea that somehow we're dependent upon the sovereign grace of God to enable us to do what God commands. Pelagius said destroys any sense of human accountability or freedom. Yeah. We'll pick up with that next time. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Theology Unplugged, let me tell you about some of the other resources we have available. Visit us online at credohouse.org and browse over 2,000 articles on everything from the Crusades to gay marriage. Sign up for email updates and get the latest news, event announcements, and special deals before anyone else. Connect with us on social media. Just search Credo House on Twitter and Facebook. And you can always email us at theologyunplugged at credohouse.org. We want you to be part of the Credo community. Please partner with us in making theology accessible and pushing back the intellectual attack on Christianity. Thank you.